Okay, hello everybody and welcome to another People and Dance Floors podcast. My name is Anthony Killick and this week we'll be discussing drugs and harm reduction. My co-host for today is Julia Zampini. Julia is the lead coordinator on the People and Dance Floors project and is a criminology uh, lecturer at the University of Greenwich. Say hello, Julia. Hello, I'm back. <laughs> Joining us week by week. And uh, today we're very pleased to be joined by Matt Southwell. Matt is a community organiser and harm reduction worker and also one of the founding members of the European Network of People Who Use Drugs. He was also one of the first people to introduce party harm reduction education through his work with Mixmag. And maybe we can start off today's uh, conversation by talking a little bit about that, Matt. If you could just tell us a little bit about um, your background in that respect. Yeah, so thank you very much for inviting me and congratulations on your excellent project. Um, my background was I was one of the UK's first harm reduction workers in the late 1980s, responding to HIV among people who inject drugs. Um, but also I had worked at university in a nightclub and we had been going out, particularly on the gay hard house scene. And um, so while I was responding to HIV, I was also taking part in the hard house scene, which was based around clubs like Trade um, and uh, DJs like Tony DeVitt. So that, that was really how we were winding down and then having uh, uh, managing this response to the HIV epidemic with the hard drug users and then going out and partying at the weekends and that was our, our relaxation. At a certain point we also started to realise that there were harm reduction issues in that setting as well and we were drug workers and we had nurses and various different people in our friendship group. We were very core dancers so we were dancing in the middle of the floor at trade so if people got into problems, then we would help them. So we weren't a traditional dance safety project. We weren't sitting off from the club, but we were experienced clubbers who loved dancing. And if people got into problems, we then helped them. That sounds great. I love that. I love the fact that you're like completely embedded and involved in the scene whilst at the same time kind of, uh, I don't know, just kind of spreading the kind of principles and practices of harm reduction. Uh, so yeah, so that's great. And uh, can you tell us a bit more about uh, what sort of sparked the Dance Drugs Alliance project? Yeah, so we, we were very lucky to be at Trade because it was a very protected club. And we had this wonderful DJ, Tony DeVitt, who really championed our safety as clubbers and would like refuse to play if they tried to overload the club. And it was also a protected drug scene. They had deals with the police, so there were dealers on site, and you know, we knew them and worked with them. And it meant that we had a very close relationship between those of us who were experienced drug users on the scene and those who were you know, managing this club environment. As we moved out to party in other settings, we started to realise that life was very different in other clubs. We got harassed by security. I got busted in Ibiza. You know, we had you know, violence against us, lots of different issues. So suddenly we thought, look, we're just partying in this very privileged space. Now we can either just stay there and hide out, or we can start saying, look how we're doing things here in a space where we as peers have a lot of influence, we're trusted. There was a guy called Kenny who was a senior nurse who dressed up as a devil and danced on the front steps. He was the only person allowed to dance there, but he was constantly looking out for people in problems in the crowd. He would catch people's eyes and dance them up. And it was this really amazing caring process that took place. So the Dance Drugs Alliance was a, a process where a few of us came together, DJs, BJs, clubbers, partiers, dancers, different stakeholders in the scene. And we came together to say, we want to campaign 
for the rights of people who use drugs, but particularly dance drug users. And we defined ourselves as dance drug users. That's how we called ourselves. Um, yeah. And, and you, it, was it during that time that you produced uh, the article for Mixmag? Uh, one of the first harm reduction articles I think there was the was it 18 things to know about using drugs yeah so it was a really important article because we'd gathered all this expertise about you know about party drug use for example and understanding that there's different types of sickness that affect people nausea that affect people who are taking drugs and they tell you very different things about your body like coming up sickness is something that's not too problematic happens when the ecstasy starts working and no, that will pass, you, can, you might be sick, but it's not a big issue. Exhaustion sickness, which happens at the end of the night when your body is completely run out of energy is a very serious issue that you need to manage. So just being able to share that type of advice felt really important. And just talking to our peers on dance floors, while that was important, it wasn't enough. So we had uh, journalists from Mixmag in our uh, organization. We were very lucky to have that expertise. And they and we were regularly advising Mixmag on drugs issues. And at a certain point, we said, let's actually produce an article in the name of the Dance Drugs Alliance. I couldn't publicly be the author at that point because I was still working publicly in drug services. But we did it under the name of the Dance Drugs Alliance. So I wrote all this advice about how you could look after yourself, how it was an effective, optimum way to take drugs. And then Viv Reed, who was one of their editors, took the article and re-span it into this sort of catchy 18 things you should know about taking drugs. And it was a groundbreaking article. And it really had the letters page the next month was full of people just saying, thank you, finally, we've been given sensible information about drugs, not being told not to do this, not to do that, but being given reasonable practi practical advice from our community to our community. Mm. Do you think that at that point there was a more openness towards harm reduction initiatives by, you know, clubbers and punters and people in the scene um, that would, you know, essentially give them some space to become stakeholders themselves? Because something I noticed about, you know, more recent times is that that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, look, I was, I mean, for me, the experience of trade was very, very different. So then going in the summer to Ibiza, going to the super clubs, where we were in charge £30 for a drink, you know, £15 for a bottle of water. You know, we had police robbing us regularly. Now, my friends were stripped naked in the street by the police and had their phones and wallets stolen from them. Now, couldn't I, I then went to the, to, to the consulate to say, look, this is what's happening. What are you doing about it? And they were just saying, well, there's not really anything we want to do because the government don't really want you to be here. And I was saying, look, these people are making a fortune out of us. Why are we also being exploited? No, this, no, this is the, this feels really problematic. And it was really challenging because very, very few people had the ability to step across from the dance floor into the policy environment, into the, you know, I'm a, I'm a reasonably stroppy activist. So when someone rolls my friends, I go straight to the consulates and harass the consulates about it. I don't just let it pass. Um, but no, that's not the case for most drug users. And I think that's why we wanted to organise. We wanted to, to be able to say to people, no, you're making a lot of money out of us. We're not just suckers. Mm -hmm. We are actually stakeholders in this scene. Mm -hmm. No, trade was a fantastic club because of the dancers, as well as the DJs, as well as the VJs, as well as the, you know, the, the people selling drinks and all the other things that went on. No, if you didn't have that core group of dancers at the heart of the dance floor, the club didn't exist. Mm, Shade yeah. understood that. The super clubs were disgraceful. They behaved in the most exploitative ways. 
when people said to them, right, now we must have a bottle of water at this fixed price, they then put in bottles that were half the size. Yeah. And it's just everything, no hot water taps, everything that just seemed to be about exploiting people while making money out of us. And that really pissed me off, I have to say. I hear you. Yeah, I think there's also a fear among a lot of club owners because um, we were talking a little while ago that before we started recording this broadcast about a BBC documentary called Drugs Map of Britain. And in one of the episodes of that documentary, you see club owners actually being fearful of harm reduction uh, policies and, you know, the practical implementation of them because it would be seen potentially as a way for them to be legitimising um, drugs and drug use, which would obviously uh, get them shut down and, and those kinds of things. But if you look back, as you were saying, Matt, a little while ago, there has been some kind of like glimmers of cooperation, oddly enough, between police and drug users in order to try and work together um, in formulating drugs policy, especially uh, in the mid 90s. I wonder if you could say a little bit about that. Yeah, look, we were we were invited by Manchester Police. No, very, very strange when you get rung up by Greater Manchester Police saying we're going to develop this dance safety initiative. We want drug user representation. We hear that you're a drug user group. We've seen your work in Mixmag. Would you like, do you have anybody in Manchester that you could put into our programme? And no, I, I had actually worked quite a lot with the police in East London, you know, working with hard drug users. So I wasn't so fearful about working with the police. I, I trained many, many police officers in my, in my life. So, and I saw this guy was, the, I forget his name now, actually. He was a sergeant. He went on to be the APPO, the Association of Chief Police Officers lead for, for the dance drugs policy. And he set up this really pragmatic scheme that brought together harm reduction providers, bouncers, club owners, police and us as drug users and started to talk about, look, this is going on. It's wasting loads of police time, having to rush in every single time bouncers find drugs. The realistic reality is these dance clubs aren't causing public nuisance. Only the, the challenges on the door is what we have problems with. But actually, no, where the police really wanted to put their attention was on the drinking clubs. They're the ones that caused the major problems. So what the, they came up with was an idea that if clubs signed up to the GN Club Safe Scheme, they had to comply with certain requirements depending on how big a club they were, from free water to um, having all your bar staff trained, having all your security staff trained, if you were bigger clubs having chill out areas, now, if you were even bigger clubs having nurses and other, and other type of support staff, and thinking about peer education and all those other aspects. So that was, that was the deal. What you got as a reward was you could have a drugs um, bin on the door. And it meant that anybody queuing who suddenly panicked and thought, actually, I've got drugs in my pocket, I don't want to go through security, could put them in the bin and walk in. Mm. Or if someone was caught by the security with a small amount of drugs, they could seize them and put them in the bin. But the police didn't have to be called unless it was a major dealer bringing in large quantities. And that took the police away from the clubs. It meant the police came and picked up the drugs no, once a week rather than all the time. It meant that all the stakeholders were talking sensibly about what was going on and the focus was on the public health of dance drug users. That was the priority. And it made the club owners, who were mostly, actually a lot of them were drug users themselves, a lot of them were friends of us if they weren't drug users, and they were delighted because it allowed them to have an honest dialogue. The police said, look, we know what everybody's doing, let's be honest about it and discuss it practically and it was such a great scheme I mean 
Um, I went in with a level of suspicion to it. I wasn't the peer representative because it was a Manchester drug user, but the guy was super impressed by the police. And we later did press stories with them. And you know, I think it was a really pioneering project. Sounds great. I was just thinking about whether you, what your thoughts are on the fact that um, kind of harm reduction used to be a pillar of UK drug policy and the drug strategy back then, and perhaps it's not so much anymore. So do you think that made a difference in terms of, uh, you know, obviously a potential for collaboration with, with police and other bodies, but also more generally about, you know, where our efforts and where like everybody's efforts in drug policy are, are, are sort of being directed to? Uh, at present compared to before? Yeah, look, in 1999, we formed the National Drug Users Development Agency, which brought together 45 drug user groups from the dance drug scene, the cannabis scene, the medicinal cannabis scene, ex-drug users, current drug users, injectors, methadone users, crack users, everybody in one network. And the government's response to us was to say, we only want to talk to the service users because they're patients. The rest of them we don't want to talk to. The cannabis users were trying to say, we can see a pattern emerging among young cannabis users getting into dependency problems. We would like to help you respond to this. Now, 20 years later, we're dealing with exactly that problem, which the cannabis leaders said 20 years ago, we could help you deal with this and prevent it. And so all of those, and the government just basically trashed our network and you know, abused us. And five years later, we, our network was destroyed. We got caught in the fights between the anti-drug drug czar's office and the Department of Health. And they destroyed us, not because they cared about us, just because they were fighting with each other. And we got caught in the crossfire and destroyed, which ruined my life and you know, led me into five years of drug dependency, which you know, after 20 years of being a recreational drug user. Mm. So I then left the UK. I mean, I live here, but mm. I worked for 15 years. Mm. COVID forced me to come back to the UK in terms of drug policy. Mm. I'm pleased that people seem to be coming back to harm reduction again. I'm shocked it takes an HIV outbreak in Glasgow to cause that to happen. Mm. And I think you know, in the last 15 years, we've seen treatment numbers down, mm. opioid deaths up. Mm. You know, yeah. when, we, when we leave now that we've left Europe, Europe's EU's deaths go down, the drug-related deaths go down by 25% because the UK leaves the EU. That's a disgrace. Yeah. The British model that was the leading model around the world. And I used to teach that model. I still teach that model around the world, but it's so frustrating to come home and not find that model in place. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, you know, like what you described made me think about a couple of things. The first thing was the absolute, like disdain and, and distrust that exists for people's experiential knowledge, in this case, drug users' own experiences and how, that knowledge is so valuable and can make a massive contribution, could make a massive contribution to policy, to initiatives, could help government, but there's just no credibility that is granted to that experience and that knowledge. And therefore, you know, that made me think about part of the reason why your, uh, your, your alliance, your broader alliance kind of disintegrated uh, out of kind of, I don't know, I guess just, just the, the government treating you like crap and not, not, not valuing your, your input. No, we, we had responded, drug users had responded to the HIV epidemic. We were part of the reason why the UK overcame HIV so successfully among people who injected drugs. And Tony Blair's response is to turn around and say, OK, now the only way to justify opiate substitution therapy is to treat drug users as criminals. Let's mm -hmm. let's give them OST because they're such a bunch of criminals that that will justify it to the public. And it's like, thank you very much. You know, we spent 10 years with you 
fighting to overcome HIV. I care for 60 of my friends who died of HIV during that period, running a you know, peer-led uh, terminal care support team. We did all of that, and then they just trashed us. And it was just like going, and then, of course, all the recreational drug users go, well, if that's the way government treats drug users, why would we want to work with them? Now, if they treat hard drug users like that, why would we want anybody else want to work with them? And that's created huge problems for like the cannabis social clubs. We don't have any dance drug user movement in the UK anymore. Because I got so demoralised, I walked away. That led led the movement to collapse. No, and and we now have a much bigger dance drug using population. So yeah. let's spread through that group much more difficult in much with much more difficult difficulty. So in my era, we were a relatively small group of people, so we were able to communicate much more effectively. Now we have social media, which of course is a huge advantage. Um, but it's very difficult to talk about drugs and social media because we're constantly repressed every time we try to do it. Yeah, and also because I think, you know, like social media is quite good for uh, maybe um, um, spreading information to an existing network, but to break outside of that network, you need to know about, you know, you need to engage all the time. It's like a full-time job. You need to know algorithms and whatnot. Um, But also, yeah, I think in terms of, to, to me personally, harm reduction is 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 not just a value and a principle that I abide by, but it's like it's it's the way forward in so many different ways, in so many different ways, and you know beyond drug policy, it's it's kind of like a a core principle that I'd like to follow in all different aspects of my life. And I think I don't know, I feel like you know that the fact that there is no kind of information and and or there is you know amongst the kind of I guess dance drug users scene and culture that kind of harm reduction message and kind of practices seem to have been completely lost yeah. and yeah that just makes me really sad i guess i was i was reading um the second edition of david nutt's book drugs without the hot air the other day and he starts off that book by talking about how uh drugs policy and media representations of drugs use often mirror each other to the extent that they are in a deadlock and there really isn't any way of progressing towards a more science-based evidence-based harm reduction based kind of approach to uh, drugs and drug policy because of this pressure that exists on the government um, to be, you know, clamped down or cracked down on drugs and the causes of drugs and crime and, and that association, all those kinds of things. And I wonder what you thought about that, Matt, in terms of that deadlock that exists between uh, media policy and representations in the media of drug users. Look, it's very difficult. I mean, I, I mean, it's, uh, when I came out publicly as a drug user in, in 1999, in response to Tony Blair's demonisation of us, I then came out publicly as a drug user in a TV documentary and then was sacked from the NHS and lost my consulting company because my main customer was the probation service and they wouldn't have a criminal training them anymore. Um, so um, in terms of media, I, that then allowed me to start to do a lot more work in the media and to, and to talk openly. And to, and to go and talk to journalists, try to provide expert opinions on drugs, try to talk positively. The numbers of times I was recut to say the opposite of what I said. And then I ring them up and say, no, I didn't say that. I said exactly the opposite of that. You cut me to say this. And they would say, yeah, yeah, that our lawyers told us we had to. And it's like going, then don't interview me. If you want to change my voice, don't interview me. And I spoke to one of the journalists I was working with, and he said to me, it's really challenging. He was, he was also teaching journalism theory, which was very helpful. And he said, there's these different frames. And he said, if people see you in a particular frame, you can move that frame a little, but you can't move it substantially. So you have to think, how can you move the frame 
bit by bit by bit. So when I was standing up saying, hey, I represent the crack squad. We're a group of peer-led crack peer educators. I mean, people's jaw used to hit the floor and they would be, you know, horrified. And you had to start to think, how can we, you know, when I first came out, I came out as an ecstasy user. In fact, I was a poly drug user. I spoke about my ecstasy use because it felt a safer drug to talk about. Behind me, there were three other drug users speaking as heroin, cocaine and ecstasy users, but they all had their their faces hidden, whereas I was the the front person, so I couldn't, no. And I, yeah, I chose to talk about my ecstasy use at that point because that felt less demonized no less demonizing i've gone on to talk about my ketamine use my injecting drug use my heroin use my crack use but no that has challenges it's it's incredibly challenging for my family it's no my mum finds it horrifying she really supports my drug no she really supports my community work and thinks it's really valuable and struggles with me being a public drug user it's a no that's it's challenging to have your son in that in that way when people are demonizing and framing us in such a, a negative way yeah, I think, I mean, what this is sort of makes me think about how difficult it is to exist in a complex, as a complex human being um, with a lot of contradictions and a lot of, you know, and also kind of stimulating uh, a contradictory responses. You know, on the one hand, I appreciate you for the work you do, but on the other hand, I might judge you because I don't agree with your choices. And I feel like, you know, it, as drug users, it's so difficult to, to exist as complex human beings. It's like, you're like, you know, kind of, you're, you're totalizing identity is that of the drug user and then that's it. And like, that's, you know, your label and that label is kind of, is sticky and it's unchangeable. And yeah, it's, it's a real, um, it's a real shame in terms of trying to progress that narrative and kind of, you know, widening that frame, like you were saying before about, about the frames. Yeah. 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 Um, Matt, just coming back to the question of um, harm reduction, there might be some people uh, listening to this podcast that have never actually encountered that phrase before. So I was wondering if you could explain what harm reduction means to you. Yeah, so I, I suppose maybe to come step back from harm reduction first is that the Dance Drugs Alliance had a strapline slogan, slogan and it was maximum pleasure, minimum risk. And I think for us as dance drug users, there was always that duality is in play. I didn't take drugs to manage risk. I know as an XD taker, I'm a high risk taker, most drug users are. So my profile is as a risk taker, but I don't take drugs to take risk. I take drugs because they cause me a lot of pleasure and I have a lot of fun dancing with them and they have spiritual engagement and they have a whole load of different things they do mm. for me in my life. So given the fact I'm trying to seek that pleasure, that enlightenment, whatever it is I'm looking for, that body development or whatever, uh, um, then I need to think, how can I do that in a way that causes the least risk to my body and, and my mind and, my, and my, uh, my, my psychological state? So harm reduction is about understanding how your, your body is made up, how the drugs operate and how the environment you work in is, is important to that, that, that process of that interaction. And we learn to manage that, that triad between the drugs we're taking the set our personal makeup and the environment we're in and we think in a complex way about how can we manage these risks it might be about using you know, uh, post-it notes or you know, mcdonald's straws to avoid sharing tutors it might be about um, you know, chopping up our drugs so they don't um, cause damage to, so much damage to the inside of our nose it may be after after using nasal care though different things that help us manage our our health and those practices are a way of life for me. They're a, they're a way that when I go out clubbing with people, 
you know, we go out as a group with clear goals of what we're going to do, what drugs we're going to take, but we also buddy up um, as pairs so that we can track with each other and stay in touch with each other. Also, if anybody drug spikes anybody in our group, we recognise it very quickly because, you know, we're all using drugs together. We're looking out for each other. We're watching out for predatory people around our group. And then from that group, also, we're you know, offering care and support and friendship to other people around us in exactly the way other people are normally offering it back to us in other ways. It just happened my peer group was full of nurses and doctors and uh, <laughs> psychologists and um, drugs workers. So we were a particularly useful group to be having in the middle of your dance floor in case anybody got into problems while Kenny was watching over everybody with his devil's outfit. No. <laughs> it reminds me, what you've just described reminds me of um, Stephen Ling's work about, you know, edge work, the concept of edge work and that sort of idea that um, you know, people, uh, you know, manage to find an edge and then kind of manage their edge by learning, you know, about risks and trying to manage the risk in order to attain, obtain maximum pleasure. So, but also, interestingly, like his work was first applied to kind of extreme sports, which are not necessarily a morally contentious area. So it's fine to do extreme sports and, 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 and being a, a high risk taker in that regard, but it's not in the in the context of using drugs for whatever reason. <laughs> well, we did a paper at a harm reduction conference once, which um, was a, a an opposition paper to a session on drugs prevention, and we were really opposed to it even appearing in a harm reduction conference. But they gave us a counter speech, which was called to you know, to prevent a human right. No, like, what? Are, why are you trying to prevent us from doing something that is our right? Mm. One of the posters we came up with was a. Showing how stupid prohibition is, we said, look, I found out how many people get injured playing football every year. Apparently, six and a half million of people get injured playing football. And we, you know, we did this post, the prohibition post that said they died with their boots on, just say no to football. And we were sort of like, <laughs> how drugs were treated. And we were just trying to show people who don't use drugs how ridiculous drug prevention messaging is experienced by mm. us. Mm. And I said, trying to take behaviors that they engaged in and treat them in a prohibition way mm. and they of course all laughed and went isn't that ridiculous and we said exactly that's exactly how we respond every time you send us these stupid messages that say you know just one e took killed near bets or whatever yeah i guess it sort of brings it back to that you know the media issue and, and, and the public consciousness around drug use that kind of arises from that there, there is i think uh, a, 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 an opinion among most people that drugs are way more dangerous than playing football and um, that on that basis they should be uh, put under prohibition in that way I would suppose but if you actually look at the science and the evidence for it which most people don't and the government often doesn't want people to um, there is a different story that, that gets told I think so there's more room there I think for um, more accurate representations within the media of, of drug use and that is exactly what uh, people and dance floors the film hey, was trying to do See how I got that in there? <laughs> <laughs> Good promo, thank you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, look, yeah. I, I think there's so much experience in drug scenes and in dance drug scenes. There's so many people who are, and particularly because of the nature of ecstasy, ecstasy is a very empathic drug. It makes you have this, it opens your heart to yourself and to people around you. And that creates a beautiful space to, to party in and dance in. We used to talk about a concept of friends for a nighttime. You know, the idea of friends for a lifetime. You have these like 
super close friendships with people, and then you never saw them again. Mm-hmm. But you know, you both get gifted each other these moments of engagement, moments of connection. And these could be like people offering massage to you, someone doing some psychological exploration with you, people that whole range of things. And it just try to explain that to the straights. Look, this is what we do in this setting. We're not running around, no ripping heads off goats and drinking blood. No, we're actually having a pretty nice time supporting each other. And sometimes people get into problems. But I tell you what, when I've got into problems in those spaces, I've had people come, you know, I had had a borderline psychotic experience taking, unintentionally taking LSD and it got cut into ecstasy. And no, the way people supported me in that setting made me feel all the years of care I'd given to other people came back at me in the moment that I needed it. And I think and that, I think that experience in clubs is very, very frequent. I don't think I'm exceptional in that. I think that's something very typical that most people who've lived a life of being clubbers understand. Mm-hmm. All three parties, I accept them as clubbers and three parties. And, and the Dance Drugs Alliance was very much an alliance of both groups, which I was also very important. I don't know, big up to the... We used to joke with each other about being clubbers or free parties or squat parties. And no, we, we used to have some fun joking with each other, but in terms of coming together across all those different drug scenes and seeing that there was real commonality around our needs for harm reduction, our needs for safe spaces to dance in. So it sounds like that those sort of traditional forms of harm reduction uh, that you mentioned at the beginning, such as working with people um, who inject drugs and things like that, sort of almost start to echo out to other uh, forms of drug use and other kinds of uh, drug use settings. Do you think that there is a way in which those different forms of harm reduction can come together in a in a kind of significant way? Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, for me, the fact that I've used different drugs and have learned from different experiences, you know, like when I've taken um, ayahuasca, I've learned from you know, shamans from Latin America, how they manage events. When I take, when I run parties in my own home, I think about how I create spaces for people to take drugs in. When I go out into a club space, I think, you know, how me and my mates look after each, ourselves in this maybe more slightly more challenging space but what no although trade you know was an illegal club because it brought off the police and the dealers had a relationship it meant that the, everybody was taking the same drugs created a wonderful experience in the club because rather than everybody taking different things mm-hmm. there were probably about five or six different types of ecstasy that different people were taking but it's created such an amazing collective experience and we knew the supplier we knew him well and we and he was there every week, so he wasn't going to rip us off or sell us crap. And if he did, we took it back, and he changed it. No, I mean that was the, and he apologised. No, so there was a no, it was a really different type of time, and and decrim could recreate that just like that. Mm. Take the pressure off the clubs and allow them to look after their customers mm. and care for them, rather than have to punish them all the time. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like this kind of that a lot of those early good experiences of clubbing just came from the fact that um, it was like a strong community um, and the community looked after each other. So there was a sense of care that was shared amongst everybody that was involved. And so you're saying that um, having a decriminalized system might go somewhere uh, in terms of because I was thinking, you know, I'd like for clubs to instead of because at the moment we've got super commercial money-making kind of or profit-oriented systems whereby it's all about packing loads of people in it's about selling loads of booze and just not really worrying about anything else and of course bouncers become the enemy (laughs) and such people need to hide their drug use they might 
you take drugs in risky ways because they're sort of doing it quickly and so on and so forth. So it actually creates a, an, an unsafe environment that is potentially threatening to people. Um, so yeah, so I was thinking, you know, I guess my question is, what do you envision being like the perfect kind of club experience? What what would need to be in place for it to be, to work in a way that is caring for everyone and that gives everybody a good a good experience? Let me tell you two stories of being caught with drugs in clubs as an example. So I was dancing in trade and I was pretty off my face at the time and I was when you're off your face deciding now would be a marvellous time to take even more drugs. So I got out of the plastic bag with various different pills but I was quite tripping so I was trying to hold it up in the light to see which tablets I had left. And as I was holding it up, the head of security walked up behind me, put his hand on my shoulder and said, put that away. And when I came and I put it in my pocket and carried on and later, later in the night when I was a bit more <laughs> stabilised, I went up to him and said, look, mate, I'm really sorry for how I behaved. He said, don't worry, there's a mix mag photographer standing right behind you. That's why I told you to put the pills away. No. <laughs> <laughs> then, then another time I was dancing in space in Ibiza, I came back from the toilet having cut up pills into halves for my friends. I stepped onto the podium where they were dancing, handed them handed around the pills, and they all cracked open light sticks just at the moment when I passed the pills around. Two undercover police officers grabbed me, took me outside. I very closely got beaten up by them. No, it was a really hardcore experience. Luckily, I was going home that straight away from after the club, so they let me go home. But it was a very, very... No, I was the senior manager in drug services at the time. That would have been an end of my career. It would have been a big story. So one was a head of security saying to me, mate, just look out for your public relations. Look out for yourself. Be, how can I help you? Mm. Being very friendly with me. And then another one was a very, very hostile situation that nearly led to physical violence, nearly led to, led to me being thrown out of the club, you know, could have led to imprisonment. No, very serious story. Exactly the same situation. Mm. That's what Decrim does. Decrim says, we aren't trying to bust people who use drugs. We want people to be safe. How can we create the most safe environment for you to party in? The logo of the, the our Dance Drugs Alliance was a, we used to have this card which had a, a hamster dancing in a wheel saying we're all looking for a safe place to dance. Mm. And I think like, that concept of what is that wheel around us that makes us feel safe so that we can take these drugs. When I first took ecstasy, it had a saffron base. What I've seen over a period of time because of banning precursors, mm. ecstasy has become more and more and more dangerous. Mm. If they just left it alone with saffron in the first place, we would have all had the excellent quality organic ecstasy that we first took when I was in my 20s. Mm. That disappeared because of the banning of precursors. Mm. So now young people face far, far more risk mm. because of drug policy, mm. because of prohibition. That's why we need decriminalisation. Yeah. 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 I mean, completely. I agree. So I think um, in terms of those recent developments that you were just talking about, because it does seem that, you know, as you just said, the, um, the, the situation is getting worse and worse. I mean, have there been any uh, recent developments in terms of the harm reduction perspective that are perhaps a little bit more positive and, and I guess more broadly, how do you think uh, we as a, as a country and as, as different communities have been faring, particularly in the concept, and I'm sorry to ask this, but I guess we should, in the context of the pandemic, because, um, you know, that's the question on everyone's lips these days, isn't it? So, <clears throat> Um, so the first bit was what? So remind me the first. 
just in terms of like thinking about recent developments in harm reduction. That's right, I remember what I was going to say. Okay, so I mean, if I look for hope, I always look to the drug user movement. It's the drug user rights movement is where hope constantly evolves from you know, whatever section, whether it's the dance drug users, the cannabis users, the hard drug users, that these groups that I'm proud to be part of are doing remarkable work. The UK is facing a catastrophic problem with ketamine dependency and ketamine bladder syndrome, and that has come from our club scene. Mm -hmm. We cannot get government to respond. We have got asked them again and again and again to respond. We have formed a peer group called Straight From The Horse's Mouth, which is a group of us who are ketamine users, some psychomotors, some ex-users, some people with ketamine dependency syndrome, some people with you know, very severe ketamine bladder syndrome. We have found out really interesting things that if you don't remove people's bladders early when they get hardened, they can actually come back to almost full functioning if you follow various patterns, particularly stepping away from using ketamine. Now, because they're not talking to us, they're carrying on taking out people's bladders unnecessarily. We have spoken to the National Treatment Agency and they just bullshitted us. They told us it was a regional issue, so talk to the regional office. We talk to the regional office, they say talk to the national office. Just complete dereliction of duty. So there's young people all over the country facing ketamine dependency and ketamine bladder syndrome with no help, zero help. But we as drug users have come together and we're writing a guide how to use ketamine and we are building a video resource that will teach people how to respond. And we are about to approach drug services and say, wouldn't it be nice if you actually funded us to do this work rather than those of us as drug users having to do it on a voluntary basis alongside our jobs, alongside our other work? Now, where, where, wouldn't it be nice if you actually backed up the drug user movement rather than just frustrated our work all the time? But I think now that is a really positive example of where drug users are saying, here's a really critical problem, but we've got solutions to it. We, we, we know how to avoid the problems. We know how to respond to the problems. We know how to deal with dependence, but nobody is talking to us. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, this is where the UK is. We've become completely disconnected from policy and practice, even practice because it's gone into this ridiculous recovery model, which has no scientific basis. It just means when people turn up at drug services, they just feel totally alienated. And that's why treatment numbers are down. That's why people from ketamine users just don't want to go to drug services. They, they go and be invited to sit in recovery groups and people go, what does relevance does this have to my life? I'm a party drug user. No. And it's just, that's the frustration I find, but the hope is in the drug user movement. We are here, we're ready to work with people and people need to step up. Mm -hmm. I think your project, I think the Drug Policy Voices project, these initiatives trying to, through research, gather the voices and amplify the voices of different drug users, I think are remarkable and I'm really happy to support your work. Thank you. Well, to be honest, I, I got frustrated because I spent the best part of four years looking at, you know, the use of evidence in drug policy and then I found that you know, not only does evidence not count, but also evidence means something quite narrow in the majority of cases, which means it excludes a lot of valid knowledge, including drug user voices. And I found that rather frustrating because a lot of the experiences that you described are so would be so valuable and should be, you know, included and given credit to and give, you know, and 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 just responded to in a much more meaningful way. And the other thing I was going to say as well is um, just just to conclude, I've got a little curiosity question. 
Um, do you have any examples with any of your European partners about, you know, places uh, where things are working a bit better than the UK, you know, where like there is more of a open door to collaboration with between drug users and, and government? Yeah, look, I, I think there's been some there's been some really remarkable work. I think Medicine de Bon's work with the free party scene um, the spiral tribe scene, the free party scene was remarkable. I mean, it ended up being a very, very violent scene with lots of gangsters coming in, which is the problems with the illegal drugs trade. But that, that group did some amazing work mediating that scene, which was partly a scene that fled from the UK and, and went around France and Europe for a period of time. They did some remarkable work and, and friends of mine were involved in documenting some of that work. Some of the dance safety initiatives, I mean, I, I, it's not my preferred way of going out clubbing. I don't want to sit in a tent and look after casualties all night. That's not my that's not my joy in life. I like dancing. But I really do respect those dance safety initiatives that create those safe spaces that where people who are having psychedelic crises can go. Those people who are, who are you know, struggling with the amount of drugs they're taking or want to learn more or want to access drug testing. I think people delivering those initiatives, there's great examples in Spain, in Germany, in, in various different countries. And uh, no, I think I think we've lost our way a little bit with that. I mean, Australia's got fantastic, you know, very specialist initiatives around you know, GHB angels going out, helping the gay scene with GHB. You know, some really progressive models that are out there. We know how to do this work. That's the so frustrating thing. The GM Club Safe Scheme teaches how to regulate all these dance safety initiatives teach us how to do dance safety work. Clubs, I think, would much rather be able to look after their customers rather than persecute them. The only thing getting in the way is politicians mm. who constantly lead us away from the science because they want to be seen to be tough on crime. And the best way to be tough on crime is to kick the fuck out of drug users. Mm. And frankly, kick the fuck out for the last 30 years. I'm super frustrated by it because the long-term consequences is that 25,000 of our peers have been executed in the Philippines. And mm. it's when you demonize drug users, that's where it ends. Yeah. And it says, oh, subsing. No, as soon as you dehumanize any population, it gives permissions like Duerte, the bastards like Duerte, the chance to summarily execute people just because they use drugs. That's yeah. the consequence dehumanizing people yeah it's true. i'm sick of it i really am i think no we sit in we listen to this you know the big lie of trump and it's like going we're still dealing with a big lie of nixon mm -hmm. you know nixon only brought in drug policy to demonize the blacks and demonize the anti-war lefties mm -hmm. why haven't we sorted this out it's 50 yeah. years later yeah look how the world has responded to covid now when we come together we can sort out problems we sit here having created through our global institutions a catastrophe. And everybody sits there going, oh, isn't it terrible? Why do we think so many people are dying? And it's like going, because of your policies, change them. It's about time we know what works. Mm. Do you think it would help if, um, if you know, more people in powerful positions, especially in Anglophone countries, but in sort of rich countries in general, um, uh, started to speak out about being drug users. Yeah, look, Professor Carl Hart at the last harm reduction conference really called on people to start, particularly people in positions of power, to stand up publicly and talk about their drug taking. And I love Carl, but I'm, I'm not completely supportive of his position. I mean, no, my reality was as a senior drug service manager, no, top performing um, health service manager, 
No, I got driven out of my job the moment I acknowledged that I was a public drug user, that I was a drug user myself, even though my team was renowned for employing drug using staff and using community mobilization, but they never assumed that in fact half my management team were drug users and I was a drug user. And when I had problems with drugs, everybody turned around in the professional drugs field and said, oh yeah, see look, Matt so loved his clients that he was so boundaryless that he fell over into his drug use. I said, what you're not seeing is that four years where I had problems came after 20 years of me using in a controlled and recreational way. All the time I was running drug services, all the time I had seven drug teams, a £1.8 million budget, now, all of those things. The fact that you can't conceive that I was a drug user while I was winning, doing that award-winning work, and you assume my drug use is just that four years when I fucked up, mm. that speaks to your, your negative understanding of drug taking, mm. not my experience. Yeah. Like for me, it was a blip. It was, the, it was the extreme sportsman who falls over and breaks his leg and has to recover for a mm. period of time. That's how I saw that four years. No, it was a hard lesson. It took me some time to come back. But for me, I saw it very much like an extreme sport injury. That's how I saw it. I played hard with drugs and I fell over the edge. Mm. And I've fallen over the edge a couple of different times in different places and I have different drugs at different points. But then I'm a, an experimenter. I'm, a, I'm someone who interrogates drugs and explores them and tries to learn from my community. And sometimes I do fall over the edge as part of doing that. And it's not always the most pretty thing in the world, but it's part of how you understand what, where those boundaries actually are. Yeah. 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 So just... um. Moving towards the end, last question, if I, if that's all right with you, Julia. Or, yeah, yeah, sure, go ahead, yeah. sorry. <laughs> um, just, just coming back to how the government's dealing with uh, drugs and drug users in the context of the pandemic. Um, uh, I can't imagine there's been very many positive developments, but if you could perhaps give us a, a summary of, of what's going on currently. Oh, look, drug users are going rah, rah, COVID. I have to say, we, I mean, it's a really difficult issue with everybody else dying and having real problems. For us, it's been a godsend. It really has. We have achieved advocacy gains in the last year that we've been fighting for for 20 years. So we, have, you know, we've been in my in my hometown. We've been running secondary needle and syringe program with local drug suppliers. We are the first area in the whole country to hit 100% the NSP needle and syringe program coverage. Most people are up to about 30%. We, by working with drug users, we now have 100% coverage in our area. And we know that, but we do as well. So uh, that's one thing. The other thing is people on opiate substitution therapy have had take-home doses um, and people have blown every expectation. Everybody thought everybody would fuck up, everybody would take all their medication on the first day. What's happened? Everybody's managed it with complete fairness. All the evidence is that actually engaging in drug services, turning up and picking up your script every day leads people into constant processes of relapse. And this new hands-off, softly, softly model Drug users love it, and 77, 70% of Scottish drug users, please don't put us back into the old model. So that's been that. And then the other thing is we've been working with Release, supported by a number of different drug user groups, cannabis users, dance drug users, a whole range of different types of drug users, talking to Public Health England about what's going on on the drug scene. Mm. So we're telling them about how the drug scene is changing, what, you know, what's happening, we're looking at where parties are happening, and we're just sharing with them so that they can look at, okay, there's been a big bust of cocaine here. Yes, we're saying that cocaine on the ground is really poor quality at the moment. No, no. We've, no. So we've just been able to give them incredible intelligence about what's going on among people who use drugs and people in drug services during the pandemic. And the response from many stakeholders has been, 
we now need to completely rethink opiate substitution therapy because all the justification for our high threshold model came from not trusting drug users. Yeah. When you trusted us, we all came through. And so I mean, I've heard senior policymakers going, oh, I thought that wasn't going to happen. And we've been saying, that's what we've been saying to you for the last 20 years. Thank you for listening finally. But so, I mean, of course, I really worry that COVID is going to spread fast through drug users. We know drug users do really badly, or particularly people with substance use disorder do badly when they get it. We haven't seen big outbreaks yet. Um, so I don't want to say rah, rah, and be... Um, no, um, no, uh, be, be mocking of it. If there is an outbreak among drug users, that would be inappropriate. But at the moment, COVID has forced government to, to treat us in a way that we haven't been treated for 20 years. Mm, that's great. Okay, um, I think that's a good term to draw it to a close. Uh, Matt Southwell, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thanks very much for coming on and giving us all those really um, interesting insights. And I hope that your work progresses in a, in a very positive way um, in the future. And thanks for everything that you're also doing at the same time as, and, uh, as talking to us as well. Um, thanks to our all of our listeners as well. If you're interested in hearing more of this kind of content, please go to peopleanddancefloors.com. Um, there you'll be able to see a bunch of our written stuff and also listen to a bunch of previous podcasts that have also been done. Okay, see you next time. Thanks, Matt. Thank you very much.